we're welcome back. back. Look at us. Look at us. Episode two of season two. Right. For episode 54. Yeah. I don't know. You're not feeling that. You you, you like the whole season two thing. I do like the season two thing. I think it's kind of, kind of, although like, what do we, outside of having 54 episodes, what's the reason to do seasons? I don't know. Well, it gives you a sense of accomplishment. We did. We accomplished season one. We completed season one. So we don't, it's not in process anymore. It's done. So we got that going for us. Right. There's that. I feel like last episode was a little serious. I I feel like the people that tune in like want a little more levity from us. So maybe we can work on that for this because there was, Uh, it was a lot of us, you know, if you listen to season one, season two, episode one, it's gonna be hard. Yeah. Uh, the last episode, we we kind of like railed on our teacher experiences a little bit. I mean, it. I mean, I. It's hard for me to like really be negative about it. Got me where I wanted to be, right? And you know, we're here. Like, it's all parts of the journey that got us to. Oh boy. Here. That, that's such an ollie thing to say. Like it is. Like it's it all part of your. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we did do is identify some systemic problems in teacher yes. education that and, we and were that we were impacted by let's put it that way and i think it's let's let's unpack some of that because i think it's a really good uh, okay. so i think so one it uh because it was built on a pck thing you know it had this divide between content and practice right mm-hmm. content and in teaching content and pedagogy and so there was this in I don't know, maybe an intentional thing that, you know, as a teacher in practice, we would do this, you know, sort of like the crossover where the, the Venn diagram crosses, right? Where the, where the PCK would be developed either through the methods courses we had or actually in our teaching, right? So that's one of those, I don't know, problems or, you know, challenges that we had in our experiences. I think the other part of it was the divide between praxis like the actual practice of teaching and the stuff that was the university teaching, right? The stuff that we learned at the university. It's like, oh, and you brought this up in your experiences when you're talking about your math um, training was that mm-hmm. like you had your mentor teacher saying, well, that's not how we do things here right. in, in some way, right? In some way, yeah. either like they were looking back at you and, and the, the, the students were like, uh, do we really have to learn this? You know, <laughs> yeah. and the, and the mentor this joker's going, doing. Yeah, the mentor was like, no, you don't have to worry about that. Don't worry you know, about so, that. So that's another divide, right? Is that we had this idea that there's a difference between what we do and what the university says we should do or what mm-hmm. the, the actual field is saying we're going to do. But I think the other part is that there's this, that we use the field experience as a, let's just throw them in and they'll make sense of it. You know, mm-hmm. that was my experience. And that was your experience is that we throw them into the deep end and with the hope of they'll make sense of it. And there's lots of parts of teaching that we need to break down into constituent parts and teach in some sort of scaffolded way. Right. Because yeah. we, we just teach it all and just go, you know, and hope that the field experience, they just make their way through it. Whether, and, and I think maybe there's a fourth thing at least is the idea that, um, that we don't have oftentimes there's not really good mentorship, mm-hmm. you know, and that's yeah. not knocking the mentors. It's there's, it's, there's a whole lot of reasons why that happens, you know? Um, but I certainly, I got some mentorship, 
but not a that great deal of it. And you yeah. got, you know, in two cases, you got, you know, very different. You got anti-mentorship, yeah. I think is the yeah. word you used. Right. And then, and then the other and case. no mentorship. And then none. So, which yeah, is no, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I hope none. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think <clears throat> there's a lot of problems and they do. Many of them are around this nexus of of again what the field has described as the two worlds problem right which is one world is the school and one world is the university and we put a lot of pressure as a result of the way these systems are designed we put a lot of pressure on the pre-service teacher to do the negotiation between those two worlds right Right. and there's there's reasons for that too like this even the university supervisors who are out in the schools they're they generally speaking because of of who they tend to be, right? Again, retired teachers or retired building administrators, they tend to be much more aligned with the schools. And often the reason that we have our students teach student teachers placed in particular buildings is because those university supervisors have existing relationships. They right. they worked in those schools or they worked with colleagues in those schools. So um so this, but this complexity, this two-world nexus of um, what we do to pre-service teachers, you know, they're already in a very stressful environment. And then we basically give them conflicting information and ask them to resolve it. We're like, okay, well, all my university people are telling me X and all my school people are telling me Y, and I have to figure this out. And these people all are going to have to write me recommendations so that I can get my first job. So I'm really under a lot of pressure here to figure out what the right way to do this is. So there, there's a lot of of difficulty there. And I, and I, you know, as much as I'm, I'm willing to throw PCK under the bus, I don't think PCK is at fault for this structure. I think this is the way the structure worked right. and, and maybe has worked for a very long time. Um, and PCK was just a characterization of the different kinds of expertise that get developed in these environments. Um, and I think it isn't clear um, if you're a PCK person, like where that gets developed. Like, is that is that only developed in the field experience? Is it developed in because a lot of the people who study it study students in methods courses, not students in field experience. Um, so I don't know. It's it's an interesting I think that thing. The, the other problem we talked about was that the teacher candidate is often replacing somebody with some expertise, which right. is not something beneficial to the students or the school, you know, in which that teacher canon is placed. And so that's a really, that's another added problem. And this goes back, I think, to that nexus thing too, between the university, because the university is like, hey, here's this great thing, take on this teacher candidate. And the school's like, okay, this isn't a great thing for us. You know, right. this is not, it's, it's not a balanced, you know, benefit. Right. It's benefiting one side much more than the other. Right. Mm -hmm. At least in a very traditional sense. And so I think that's um, I think that's really good foundation for us to talk about, you know, some of our beginning works with this and maybe leading up if we have time in this episode to talk about what our schools, our institutions are doing now. Right. Yeah. And so you want to introduce the Invisible College because this was your idea. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so when I came to Penn State, um, I was not familiar with the professional development school model. Um, so I, I, we can talk about this uh, probably a fair bit because it, it's relevant to both of our areas. But what the the professional school professional development school model overall is a partnership model, which is to say it is intentionally trying to bridge this two worlds problem by integrating university and school contexts in productive ways. There's all sorts of ways that gets 
uh, institutionalized. So there are different versions of PDS and some people argue, you know, as the, uh, whenever you get a term, like whether one place or another gets to call itself a PDS or should be a PDS or whatever. But, um, but for me, it was it, when I got here and really started to understand what that program was about, it was uh, an inspiration to me to start thinking about like, how do I, how do I make that happen um, in, in my little world? Right. So the PDS at Penn state was, there were two, really, there was a one focused in elementary schools and one in, in secondary English. Um, And both of them were partnerships with the local state college area schools. Um, but what I wanted to do was, I you know, s- start experimenting um, with trying to to address some of these issues. And for me, the biggest one uh, in this two world problem was finding mentors who were aligned with the kind of pedagogy that I was interested in. Right. So having my students, because one of the biggest beefs I had from my students was, you know, they'd say, oh yeah, all this stuff is well and good, but I go out there and and my mentor teacher is not teaching like this. So they can't help me learn and I can't get any better at this. And in fact, they're telling me they don't want me to teach this way because they think it's the wrong way to go about things. So, so I was, that was the fundamental problem that I was really interested in. And then we had a really interesting confluence of events uh, at that time, which is to say, um, I I had the luck to have some extraordinary people uh, in the in the program at Penn State. So, Ali, you were one of them. Um, and oh, thanks. You're you're welcome. And then Brett Criswell, who's now a faculty member at Westchester, Westchester. and. Jason Petula, who is a faculty member with you, who we have referred to at Millersville, who we've referred to. So all three of you guys were in the program at the same time. And what that meant, and and Jason and Brett were still um, in the classroom um, at the time that- and I was in a year of residence at Penn State. So we were, right. I had taken a sabbatical uh, as a classroom teacher and was working at Penn State um, pretty much full time as a research assistant and also taking classes. And so I was sort of like your lackey, right? I was like your. Oh, that's strong. But well, okay. well, I was like transcribing and doing, yeah, all, you, you know, you know, you, were, you, you earned your pay. I I'm did. And lackey. Well, wow. maybe, maybe that's strong. Sure. It hurts my feelings hey, a little bit. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, yeah. especially after you say. I prefer minion, or, actually. Mi- uh, minion. All right. I will take that. Go. I was I was your minion, <laughs> you know, to take over the world. Right. You know? Yeah. So so what we did was we said, okay, this coming year with Ollie here full time and these two guys out in their in their um, still in their teaching roles. We said, well, this is an opportunity for us to try this out, right? So let's see if we can find two students in the pre-service preparation program who would be interested in going a little further afield because neither Brett nor Jason were in nearby districts. So um, Brett was in Bloomsburg area and um, and Jason was up in Tunkanic. Uh, thank you. Oof, boy, Tunkanic. That's right. Up, Not up often that screen. I'm the one who yeah. is is saying something correctly. Right. You know? Well, yeah. So, so, um, so we did, and we found, uh, we found two pre-service teachers who we will call Jennifer and Amy based on, um, on Ali's study. And he can talk about his study in a second here. Sure. Um, and what we really did was build a micro PDS, right? So we, we, um, 
we had them do their field placements, at least their student teaching field placements with these, with these two, um, these two mentor teachers who were at the time doc students at Penn state in science education and were therefore reasonably well aligned. Like we all, and we were having regular conversations. So Ollie and Brett and, and Jason and I, along with, with Jennifer and Amy were having regular conversations. So they were hearing us talk about teacher education in ways that I think almost no pre-service teachers ever do. And also about educational research. And all of this was sort of happening simultaneously in a big mix. And we called this project, uh, or I called this project, the Invisible College for Inquiry Science Studies. So ICUS is what we ended up. Or ISIS. Uh, or I, um, we did not call it that. Um, so, uh, we went back and forth on that a lot. Actually, I, I did. You yeah. were pretty solid on the ICUS. Yeah. I, and uh, now it turns out uh, good choice by me. So, um, is it? Yeah. You, oh, ought, yeah. To be, you ought to be affiliated with, uh, uh yeah. probably not. No, 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 you're right. Um, so, so yeah, we, we man- I managed to get a small research initiation grant, um, which let, uh, let us get some recorders and some other equipment and, um, and yeah, it was it was a, a remarkable experiment, and uh, it was short lived, but it led to a lot of the work that I continue to do, um, and and was foundational in my thinking about what teacher what what the potential of teacher education was, and and specifically though I didn't know this is what to call it at the time because it didn't have this label yet, um, was practice based teacher education. So. Right. Um, so, so yeah, why don't why don't you talk a little bit about your? Well, I think before we do that, let's. I, I you you introduced the the PDS concept, the professional development school concept, and I think we we it deserves a little bit of attention because I this might be sure. something that a lot of whole people a lot of people are you know uh, familiar with. So one a PDS is um there's actually you can go to you know a Google professional development school and there's lots and lots of information you can find. Um, Historically, it's it's been developed from a medical school model. So it's it's one where they looked at what medical schools do in terms of focusing on practice and how they mentor doctors into the profession. And I referred to this a little bit in our last episode. Um, and that medical school model where it's really designed to intentionally support the development of doctors was, you know, used as a way to inform teacher education. And if you're interested, like, okay, so anything can be a PDS. Well, actually, they, they give what's called nine essentials. So there's nine essentials that say, okay, if you meet these nine essentials, then you're probably a professional development school. They're usually intensive internship years, you know, mm-hmm. so, right. so like a semester or a whole year where they're interning, you know, usually at one single school with one single classroom, although some varieties. And that's actually a book that some of our colleagues just put out that you know, introduces different models of what this could look like in practice. So let me just go through the nine essentials quickly, and then you can, you know, we can link to this. So one is that, uh, essential one is that there's a comprehensive mission. So it's a, a mission from the school and from the university that, you know, focuses on what that looks like for over, over, over time. Um, it's focused on clinical preparation. That's essential two. Um, three, that it's professional learning and leading this is essential three for everyone involved. So it's not just mm-hmm. the, the teacher candidate, but also the, the practicing teachers in the school and the other teachers and leaders in the school too. Uh, essential four that focuses on reflection and innovation. Um, essential five that research and results are uh, a, an integral part of that partnership. 
Uh, six, essential six is that it's an articulated agreement that there, you know, a lot of schools don't actually have an agreement with uh, the institution, the university. And this is saying that that's an important part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, essential seven, that there's shared governance in place. Um, essential eight, that there's boundary spanning roles, meaning that people play different roles at different uh, schools. So like, you know, the, the cooperating teacher may actually do other things as well. And, and same thing with the university folks, university folks may be playing different roles. And then lastly, that there's essential nine, that there's shared resources and, and recognition. So those are the nine essentials. Um, and those have been around for a while and they've been modified and, and tweaked over the years, but those are the nine essentials as they're um, at the PDS website right now, if you go to um, the, actually the website is the NAPDS.org. So National uh, Association for Professional Development Schools. So, um, so I think that's, a lot of that is is integral to the, the invisible college stuff that um, the ICAS yeah. work that we did, because, you know, we had Brett um, was, you know, not only a, uh, a faculty member at Bloomsburg teaching chemistry, but he was also working with us and he was also studying with you and playing multiple roles. And so he wasn't just a cooperating teacher who was isolated from the system. There was, you know, these boundary spanning roles. There was a really articulated agreement. It was focused on doing research. There was lots of us who did all sorts of research on, on this this time. So there was that lots of reflective practice, lots of innovation that we were trying to do. And we were specifically focusing on inquiry-based instruction, because this was the, you know, really the part of the national science standards at the time mm-hmm. was that, you know, inquiry was a, an essential feature of that. And so we're like, okay, how do we develop inquiry-based teachers, reform-minded teachers? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we, you know, enculturate them into the practice? And then what does that look like after they're done with this and they're often teaching? So we had Jennifer and Amy who went through this, you know, intern experience with with Brett. And the cool thing about it was it was a co-teaching model, meaning that Brett and Jennifer one semester and Brett and Amy another semester were not just like a teach and watch type of thing. It was, you know, sometimes they were parallel teaching, meaning that they had broken the class up in half and some were teaching, you know, Brett was teaching one group and then Jennifer or Amy was teaching the other. Sometimes they were like, Brett was teaching something first and then Jennifer would teach it later. And then Jennifer would teach it first and then Brett would teach it later so that they would. So there's the cool thing about co-teaching. And this is another, there's a broad base on co-teaching is that it's designed to, you know, use the experts in the room and use the adults in the room in a variety of ways. So it's not just, you know, the mentors going down the hall, sitting in the factory room, drinking coffee, you know, it is designed in intentional ways to support some of those, you know, constituent parts of, of practice, the constituent parts of teaching. So we can focus in on, okay, today I want you to lead the beginning part of this, of this lesson. So do this part. And we're going to like focus on how you do this, or maybe on questioning, like how do you're asking questions or how are you doing formative assessments later? Or how you're like, all those things can be broken down into ways that we can focus on how to do that practice and give an intentional feedback back. Yeah. And and one thing to add there too, is from the nine essentials. I mean, I I still don't think uh, the invisible college qualifies as a PDS for a bunch of reasons, but I don't think it meets all nine, you know, but it it definitely meets some of them. And, and one of the other things that is on that essentials list that definitely was a focus for us was 
that we intended this to be a professional growth space for all of the people involved. So the mentor teachers were learning too. And that was part of the co-teaching as well, right? Is that this was an opportunity for them to have a like-minded colleague in their classroom who they could talk through ideas with and, and grow their own thinking, right? Even when there wasn't somebody else, like one of the other, you know, more experienced teachers or, or myself around, they, they always had this person or Brett always had this person that she, that he could work with, um, to talk through ideas. And, and it wasn't assumed that Brett always had the right answer and, and, you know, knew the right path forward. It was a professional conversation between colleagues. And I think those things, um, you know, and we were doing research, right? So as Ali said, we recorded, we video recorded in these classrooms the whole time they were there um, to try to get a sense of like what's happening, how how is this learning rolling out, what kind of teaching is happening in these classrooms, um, and and it was, I mean, it was a pretty um, amazing time in many respects. Like I, I, I certainly look back on that time fondly. It was. Uh, intensively, uh, an, a period of intensive professional growth for me, and I think for everybody involved in that Absolutely. project, um, because we were we were talking about teaching all the time, and we were also having people do that stuff in classrooms, and and we were not only hearing their reports about it, but we could watch the video, and we could watch it together, and we could talk about it, and we could do all of the things that you would like to see in a professional community. So. Um, and just one note, the reason we called it the Invisible College is that we were geographically distributed. So, so that's where the, you know, the idea is based on, um, a, a, I don't know, 16th century notion of, of scientists who, um, who wrote letters to each other and it was called the invisible college at the time. Um, and so we liked that idea of like, well, we're geographically distributed. We have people in all different parts of the state, um, but we're united together in this project. And we used some of the nascent technology though. We didn't use it. At, uh, you know, now I think I would design the the project quite differently because we have access to things like zoom and um, other, other, we used a lot of like, like at the time, I mean, we had set up like a social network. We had set up a mm-hmm. thing, right? Yep. Remember that? That was the thing. Yep. I don't even know if that still exists. So, yep. you know, this is, we're talking 2005, right? Yep. 2006. Yep. And I think of some of the things that we're doing then, um, it's pretty cool. Like we had set up a social network where we were, you know, having discussion boards and communicating with one another, which was mm-hmm. some data that I drew upon in my dissertation. Um, we also did, you know, video, um, you know, re- video recorded lessons, not only lessons that we were record, like we were teaching, but also, you know, Jennifer and Amy were leading and Brett was leading. Yeah. And, and then we were doing analysis with it. Like what was the software we were using at the time? Yeah. Studio code, which at that point was just making an entry into education. So um, studio code, which doesn't exist under that name anymore, but but they were a, a video analysis company that worked with sports teams, like big time uh, sports teams, division one college teams, and then also professional teams to do video analysis. And they were trying to move into the education space. And myself and, and Carlos Embelsall and Greg Kelly got some money to be able to buy some initial licenses. And the initial licenses were outrageously expensive and they gave us a, a good deal on them um, at, because we were one of the first groups in the country to actually use it. And we used it really pretty intensively. Um, and it was, it was, and, and 
well, again, it's not really around in that form anymore, but it's a powerful tool. Uh, Video analysis is a powerful tool um, in general for thinking about teaching. And we, I think we're really early adopters, uh, Absolutely. in that group. So I think Cause you figure was... like, there's a lot of States that now are like ed TPA States. This is yeah. a, you know, this is getting into the weeds a little bit with uh, teacher preparation, but ed TPA is one of the things that a lot of States are required to do, which is, you know, the, the teacher candidate has to record themselves teaching and then like write reflections and meet certain benchmarks and so, so on. Yeah. Pennsylvania is not an ed TPA state. Um, but this, but video-based recording, video-based, you know, analysis of teaching, you know, that's a TPA is probably what, like maybe 10, 12 years ago. So yeah. a lot of that stuff we were doing with the Invisible College predates that, yeah. um, which is really cool. Um, so, yeah, I think that it was a very innovative space for you and I, and I think it it just became a, um, it was the spark, the catalyst for the work we've been doing over the last, you know, 15 mm-hmm. years, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, but so let's, I'm going to talk a little bit about Jennifer and Amy who are mm-hmm. not there. It's not their real names. We've yeah. changed it because um, at least one, they're both, they still both are out there, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Jennifer is still teaching. Um, Amy actually is not teaching anymore um, after. And I think that um, the work I did was I followed uh, Jennifer and Amy before they went into their professional years, before they did their internship with Brett. So I, I was started working with them. We started working with them in their methods classes yep. and followed them. Um, I followed them for five years. So I collected data as they went through the methods year, then they went through their uh, internship, and then they went through the first couple of years of teaching. And I collected interviews with them, you know, interviewed them multiple times during the course of their teaching, uh, their first couple of years of teaching, and also watched them teach the mm-hmm. first couple of years of teaching. And really, I was focusing on how we prepare reform-minded teachers to be able to actually go off and, you know, initiate the reform, specifically around yeah. inquiry-based teaching, which was a pretty radical departure, still is, for science teaching. Um, and... What we found was both of them, both Jennifer and Amy, when they went to go into their schools and teach, they both received a lot of backlash from their colleagues um, in terms of how to teach science. It's like, you know, specifically, they were told that's not how we do that here. That's Mm -hmm. not how we teach science here, you know, either, you know, outwardly, like actually being told that or it's like here's like, I remember Amy was in our one interview I had with her was like the, her mentor, who was also another chemistry teacher said, here's all of my, here are all of my PowerPoints for the year. Just do these. Yep. And, and this is what you're, and, and it's like, hold on. I just, am going to teach from a PowerPoint. That's what the kids want. That's what, and this is how you're going to be observed. And mm-hmm. these are how you're going to get. So, you know, inquiry-based teaching doesn't lend itself to teaching from a PowerPoint, right? No. no. And so in, in very, in overt, explicit ways, they were being communicated to that this is not how teaching occurs at these yeah. schools. And so both of them, in some ways, in a lot of ways, moved away from inquiry-based instruction and just went to, you know, back to a lot of lecture-based instruction. Yeah. A lot of confirmation labs. Yeah. I think this speaks to, you know, the culture of schooling and, um, and that it is a very hard thing to change. And it, you know, 
one of the things that I think is hard is we in teacher education tend to um, assume that pre-service teachers can do this hard work, right? I mean, we're right. asking them to do reform in buildings where um, where everybody else may be against that reform, including the people who are, as you said, evaluating them and and indicating how they get to keep their job or not. So it is it is um, you know it's a lot to ask of of beginning teachers to say, okay, we we not only want you to get this vision of what teach science teaching could be, but we want you to go into schools that may be resistant to that vision and and try and implement it. Um, that, that is a big, and you know, it's certainly part of what you saw in your dissertation, right. Is, is, is how they grappled with that and, and and where they ended up on it. Yeah. And I think it once, once more demonstrates that nexus you talked about, like it's, there's a, it's a a huge nexus between, you know, what the universities are teaching and what schools are actually practicing. And so it's, it's inherent in the student teaching experiences that they get, but it's also, you know, also inherent in the experiences that new teachers go when they come to a school and they're working with teachers who are like, Hey, you know, this is the culture of our school. The culture of our department is very different. And so it has sort of like a normalizing effect to um, these teachers who are trying to bring in reforms. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think when we have new teachers working in schools or when we have new, you, you know, faculty come to, universities that's one of the things i like is that i get to see they bring new ideas and new ways of doing it mm-hmm. um but if the system itself is you know normalizing that then any any injection of innovation you know stunted yeah yeah, yeah so that was i mean that was a huge challenge for us uh it, you know because because we were you know seeing all this amazing potential and we were, you know, we had mentor teachers who could could um, be exemplars of that pedagogy, right? I mean, that was Brett was a fantastic science teacher, and he was able to. I mean, he designed a lot of his own curriculum, and he um, he really was able to say, like, this is what this is. Here's the vision. Like, you don't have to just read about it or hear or talk about it or watch videos of people you can engage in the practice with me. And, and he also was a good mentor, right? I mean, so that's a, that's another piece of it. And then, and then they also had additional mentorship from you and me and Jason and others. There were other members of the group too, but, um, but, you know, this idea that like those pre-service teachers in many respects got as close to an ideal experience as you could imagine. And, um, and yet one isn't a teacher anymore. And the other one is probably a great science teacher, but in a, in a relatively traditional way, um, or at least was by the end of your study. So who knows? Well, I, I, but I wonder about that. I mean, that's one of the things that we could do um, prior to the episode. I, I looked up uh, Jennifer to see if she was still teaching. She is. Um, but I wonder if now, you know, 10 years, 15 years out, does she now have the ability to initiate those changes? Because I mean, that's, that stuff's still there. And I think that, you know, um, certainly like the, the things we taught are still there and maybe, you know, after, you know, three to five years, does she now have the power? Does she now have the power to maybe initiate change? Maybe she's Mm -hmm. the department chair now. And she's, so there's, I guess that's the hopeful side of me too, is that, you know, because when we look at, you know, Brett, when he was teaching chemistry, 
he was not like a first year teacher. I mean, he had been teaching yeah. for like 10, or, 10 or 15 years. And so, and he was not in a department himself in which he was able to like, he was a standout. He was a rebel, mm-hmm. right? He was yeah. not, he didn't represent what everybody else was doing. He was doing his own thing and saying, cause I know this is the type of things, this is how science should be taught or how, yeah. you know, it was more reflective of the reforms that were being pushed in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't like everybody in his school was teaching this way, but yeah. Brett also had the agency to be able to say, well, you know, I'm going to do this. I don't care. Yeah. Um, and maybe Jennifer now has some of that agency. Yeah. I, I, it, it's, it's a hopeful story and I don't know. I mean, it, you know, this is part of enculturation um, right. that, that is worth thinking about. Right. I mean, if you, if she spent 20 years practicing more traditional modes of instruction, it may be hard for her to transition into that. I mean, it, it right. not that she couldn't and not that, like you say, those ideas aren't still present. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the group that I'm working with now, the middle school teachers that I'm working with now, they're, they're in the process of writing some, some articles about the way that they teach. And one of them is writing an article specifically about their own sort of transition and how they had to, you know, as a, I think, 12 or 15 year veteran who was really saying, if I can't figure out how to teach in a different way, I'm going to leave the profession because I'm just done with this. This is terrible and I don't like it and it's dissatisfying. And to to take that and, and turn it into a productive change in your own practice, I think that's, you know, that's a very hard thing. And if you don't have a like-minded community or some other support, it may be difficult, nigh on impossible. I mean, I think Brett is a bit of a unicorn in that respect. Um, you know, and maybe all three of you guys were in, in that way. Um, but, but, uh, you know, I mean, like you say, he sort of did this on his own and, and he reinvented his curriculum, even though there were other chemistry teachers in his building that were teaching the same courses that he was. And he just said, well, fine, you teach it the way you want to, but I'm going to teach it this way. I mean, there are not many teachers who are willing to do that, much less actually can accomplish it. Right. So, um, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a, I, I hope, I mean, that certainly that's one of the things that, that got me into teacher education is that I, I hoped I could have an impact and change the way that science gets taught. And one of the main vectors for me to do that is by teaching science teachers to teach differently. But if what happens is they revert to the mean because the, the school culture that they, they go into does that, then that's hard. Like then, then sometimes you think, well, am I wasting my energy here? Right. In 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 doing this. And I think the invisible college was, was an attempt to, to, see what happens when we put the maximal amount of energy into, uh, into the process to see what kind of impact it has. And, uh, and yeah. 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 So there's that. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think that, you know, maybe a follow-up, you know, with Jennifer would help us, you know, it would help us yeah. uh, understand it. But I think that what this episode is, you know, maybe capturing is the, the catalyst for some of the work that we're now doing. Yeah. And that, and that I think that's probably the stuff we will uh, discuss in, in the next episode is yeah. like the, what, what you're like the innovations you've been able to not just do as this like kind of n- niche thing with two right. science teachers, right. Is yeah. 
that you have been able to actually scale this up in in more intentional ways. And certainly at at at, at Millersville, you know, I've stolen so much of the stuff from Penn State mm. to help um, you know, drive some of the innovations we've done at Millersville to try to, you know, create a PDS, try to create a professional development school. Um you know, that isn't just, you know, for a, a couple people, but, you know, yeah. more broadly for all uh, teachers, not just in science, but in other fields too. Yeah. And so we'll put a so bit in that for, for episode three. Yeah. yeah. Let's just of, do that. Of season two. So of season two, look at that. Yeah. Look at that. yeah. So um, Joyce. Yeah. I think it's your turn to go first today. Well, I will say this, you know, um, for me, it's, it's, it's concerts. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm on, so I've been looking forward to this part of, uh, the, the, you know, late summer, early fall in which I had, uh, a bunch of concert tickets, um, that were all gonna like, so, um, a few weeks ago, I got to see green day. I got to see, uh, fallout boy Weezer. Um, that's all one to, show just so we're one clear. show. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So they were all in one, it was called the Hella mega tour. Uh, then, which was great. It was like amazing. Yeah. And then I got to see, uh, Slater, Kenny and Wilco. They were on a tour together and a few weeks. I'm going to see, uh, the dead and company, which is the grateful dead. Um, I have a lot of concerts coming up that, yeah. um, and in barring any like close downs because of quarantines and illnesses and so on. Um, I'm a, I, I miss that besides traveling over the, you know, the pandemic, seeing concerts has been one of the big losses. I love seeing live music yeah. and my joy is being able to go and see live performances of music and getting to hear that and getting to experience it right with, with a, an audience of people. And that is pretty awesome. And so definitely a joy for me. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with podcasts again. Uh, I did a podcast last week, and then I'll 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 diversify after this. But um, but I but I've had another one that I've been listening to a lot that uh, that I like, and um, and it's from two folks, Aubrey Gordon and, and Michael Hobbs, and he's a writer for Slate, and I'm trying to remember. I, she's a writer of some kind, and I I'm not remembering. But um, but it's called Maintenance Phase. And it's about health, um, broadly speaking, but it they take on topics related to sort of health and diet and and sort of unpack them and and uh, and I got onto this because Michael Hobbs does another podcast that I listen to and and so I started this one's relatively new, um, but it's it's really interesting. The last one I listened to was about body mass index, which is a very problematic and troubling uh, notion that we use for all sorts of things, including medical things that it shouldn't be used for. But, but, you know, what they do is they sort of, um, they, they unpack some of this stuff and, and, and really help you think through what they mean and, and put them in historical context and where they came from. And I feel a lot of kinship because a lot of uh, what they're doing is talking about how, um, research, especially nutrition research, which is notoriously difficult to do, sort of like teacher education research is, um, is a little obsessed with quantification and and the consequences of that obsession with quantification. So I think there are 
analogs um, to nutrition, and I've thought about this in the past um, between nutrition and and education. But but this they really get at this idea of like what happens when you start quantifying things that maybe shouldn't be quantified. And then one of the things that happens when you quantify them is you start setting a standard for what is good and what is bad. And what does that do when we have a lot of human diversity, right? To, to say like, okay, this, you know, if, if your body mass index is this, we're going to classify you in a particular way. And who's doing that classification? Who's, ma- who's naming those and determining those categories and what those categories mean? Um, and then people make decisions based on that uh, in ways that are, you know, really troubling and problematic. So um, I, I like them. They're, they're funny and, uh, and the show is great, but it also has a lot of unpacking of, of things that, you know, we take for granted. I mean, they do a lot of, in fairness, like they talk about fad diets to some extent. Um, so they did one on celery juice and things like that. But all of them get at this notion of, that I think maps on education, which is we are as humans seem to be in search of a quick fix for, for complex problems, whether that's in our own health or whether that's in our educational systems and what happens, uh, the, the unintended consequences of trying to find quick fixes to things that don't really have quick fixes and, uh, and building that on, um, on quantification as a way to collect data about, things that we're trying to change and, and what happens when the things that we quantify um, are, are culturally based in a way that's troubling. So um, that's kind of like another theme of the show, right? Yes, the theme is. of our, like this was, you know, maybe a more recent theme, but certainly just because you can measure it doesn't mean it makes sense. Right. Or that yeah. we can use it. Like we have this thing that we can measure and let's use it for lots of things, even right. things that it was not intended for. Yeah. So that's, yeah, and this that's, idea that like when when you create a measurement, you bring your own cultural baggage with right, you to that absolutely. to developing that measurement, and therefore, it's going to have bias. And right now in our country, that means it's probably going to have racism and sexism and other ableism right. built into it. Um, and a lot of what this podcast is about, to some degree, is sort of our anti-fat um, sort of bias. Right. And, and what, what is it, what does it mean to be overweight and, and, uh, in terms of health and what does it really mean as opposed to the stigmas and things that we've attached to it over time. So, so yeah, enjoy, uh, that's, that's my joy. And that's uh, awesome. I'll have to check that out and we'll see you next time. Hey, we'll see you then. See you next time. In In between. between. See ya. Bye now. 